0: This episode of NGB Ideas was recorded in August 2023. From Lab Occupier, this is NGB Ideas, a podcast about the personal journey of leaders, innovators, and disruptors in the Canadian life sciences community. I'm Jim Wilson, and on the show today, we're joined by Dave Smartin, who is President and CEO of Bioenterprise, Canada's food and agritech engine.
1: What we discovered over the years. Canada is a leader in agricultural research and food research. We're number eight in the world in the amount of per capita basis and the amount of money that we invest in agriculture and food research. That's great and kudos to the agriculture sector and the Canadian government for having put us in that position. But there's a downside to this and the downside is when it comes to taking that innovation and bringing it into the marketplace, We rank 23rd in the world. We're just ahead of Slovenia and just behind Italy. So what does that say? It says that we have a real problem somewhere in the innovation value chain or the ecosystem, that we are incapable right now of taking innovations and getting them adopted into Canadian agriculture and Canadian food systems. And we have to answer why that is.
0: We are delighted to have Dave Smartin with us today to talk about his passion for music his early years in the insurance sector, how he pivoted into tech, then venture capital, and eventually into running one of the key agritech organizations in Canada's life sciences industry. Dave Smartin, thanks so much for joining us on NGB Ideas. Thank you. It's good to be here, Jim. I appreciate you taking the time. Let's jump in. I understand you were born in Toronto, but that your family moved around a lot when you were growing up because your father was employed at a large company, and I guess with every promotion,
1: there was a move involved. Indeed. He worked for Procter & Gamble. After the uh, Second World War, P&G went out and started to uh, recruit people from university. He was given free access to the university as a result of coming back from the war. So when he graduated from McGill University in Montreal, he was snapped up by Procter & Gamble, and then the whole story started. He moved around constantly from city to city. My claim to fame is that I went to 11 different schools and 13 years of schooling.
0: Holy Andy. Really? Yeah. Did you ever have an opportunity to get to know anybody?
1: Well, you know, as a child, you make friends so quickly. But your point is well taken that as you move from place to place to place, it becomes very, very difficult to maintain any long-term relationships. So I didn't really have any of those You agree to write letters and try and stay in touch, but over a period of time, it dwindles away, even within university. Many of the people I had contact with in university, they're living their own lives, I'm living my own life, and we don't talk. Wow. You were Toronto to London, and then where else did you live? Toronto, London, Montreal, Winnipeg, Richmond, BC, and Hamilton.
0: So you've got a sense of the country long before most people do. Yeah, absolutely. I understand you've got two siblings, a brother and a sister. Where are you in the pecking order? I'm the baby. Uh, It's a good place to be. Indeed it is. (laughs) Do you think the moves growing up were difficult for the kids? Some people I've spoken to have gone through a similar situation. It created a veneer and others said it taught them how to make friends quickly.
1: Yeah, I think there's pluses and minuses all around for this. You're right. You make friends very quickly. But the fact that you're moving so often and you can't maintain those friends, I think you also become a little cold towards relationships. Hard to maintain long-term relationships because as a young person, you're always going to be pulled away and and going somewhere else. So I think that affects you. The positive thing is that you can adopt to any environment. The negative thing is that you don't embrace anything for too long.
0: That's a very good observation. I hadn't thought of that. You grew up in a traditional 1960s nuclear family where father worked and mother stayed at home to take care of the kids. How old were you when your family came back to Toronto?
1: I came back to Toronto, uh, I was in grade 7. I'm not sure what that converts to in age.
0: <laughs> My son's in grade 7 right now and he's 12. Where in Toronto did you grow up? Were you in the suburbs? Were you in Toronto proper?
1: No, we were in the suburbs. We moved to a community called West Hill, which is in the... Uh, East end of Toronto, but it's called West Hill. And then we moved from there to Markham. And I spent most of my high school years in Markham, Ontario.
0: I think Markham was probably a much smaller town than it is today.
1: Yeah. When we moved there, the population was two thousand people.
0: Wow. It's grown a bit.
1: Grown a lot. I don't know what the population is now, but it's gotta be close to half a million. What high school did you attend? Markham District High School. And sports? Yeah, sports was the usual. I played hockey, I played football a little bit of baseball. Those were the, the three main ones.
0: We've had some guests who have said high school was a bit of a trying part of their lives. Others have said you know, it was time they look back on fondly. I'm hoping that it's a time that you look back on fondly.
1: Absolutely. It was great. Markham was a fantastic place to grow up in, a small community. Everybody knew everybody. The girl sitting next to me, her father was the local dentist. Three uh, rows over, the uh, they were the lawyers. As you went, walked up Main Street, you knew exactly who was who. There's the butcher, and the butcher, she sits four rows over from me. and It's that kind of thing, right?
0: That's a wonderful environment to grow up in. I'm envious. After high school, you eventually went to the University of Toronto to do a degree in economics, if I understand correctly. And what I read about your time at U of T fascinated me because you ended up having a radio program. I didn't even know U of T had a radio station, but that became a big part of your life.
1: Absolutely, it did. I first started, I went into the radio station one day, and it was a place where students just hung out. And you listened to music, you chatted with each other, and I became a regular there just hanging out. And then one day uh, it became clear that that I knew a lot about music and rock bands and so on. And they said, look, we have a guy who just left the radio station and we got an open slot. Are you interested? And I grabbed it up.
0: You ended up having a show that ran, I think, from 8 p.m. until 11 p.m., just about every night.
1: Pretty much every night. And it was piped into a couple of University of Toronto bars as well. A story is a very quick aside. I got a phone call during one of my programs. People would call in and make requests. A fella called me and he said, Hi, Dave, it's been a long time. This is Peter. I'm running the bar. And I said, I'm sorry, Peter. Peter who? And he said, well, my name is Peter Hines. Now, I knew Peter Hines back in London, Ontario, some 14 years earlier. We used to hang around together. And now he's running the bar at University of Toronto while I'm doing the radio show. It was just one of those moments, you know?
0: I'm going to share something here. I was a DJ in my high school radio station, Wildcat Radio, Woodfield Secondary School in North Bay. So
1: there you go. <laughs> we have
0: a common history. <laughs> Music was obviously an interest, and did you ever play an instrument?
1: I did not. My father played piano, played it quite well. My brother is a very, very good guitarist. My sister plays piano. I just listen to it and absorb it as much as I can.
0: Music was an integral part of your family life growing up. Your sister, I understand, used to enter radio contests for free tickets. Did she ever win anything?
1: Yeah, she got tickets to go to see the Beatles in Minneapolis.
0: Ha! And were you able to go with her?
1: Unfortunately, I was about to go with her, but two of her other girlfriends took priority, so uh, I ended up having to stay home. (laughs)
0: And hopefully that was a good trip for them.
1: She did say when she came back that she couldn't hear a thing in the auditorium because everybody was screaming so loud.
0: (laughs) Was the U of T radio show a paid gig or was that all volunteer? All volunteer. So you eventually became the the musical director at the station. What was that time of your life like?
1: It was, I was like a kid in a candy shop, already being really into all the various bands and, and their histories You know, looking at family trees of bands as to who was in what band and when. Being offered the opportunity to come into a radio station where it was wall-to-wall albums. And you got to play whatever songs you wanted to. And you also were introduced to the record companies. The record companies would come by and they saw the University of Toronto and all these students there as a beautiful population for them to sell more records and albums and sell tickets to concerts. So we got free tickets to concerts, and we got free copies of albums. Like I say, I was a kid in a candy shop for about three years.
0: So there must have been some degree of celebrity that came along with this position.
1: No, none. <laughs> <laughs> I was just lackey in the radio station. What it did bring me was I got to see a number of artists and to do interviews with them and so on. So I met Joni Mitchell, I met Bruce Coburn, Murray McLaughlin, April Wine, fairly well-known Canadian acts back in the 70s.
0: Isn't that great? So you finished a degree in economics at U of T, and I assume you had some job offers to join radio stations, given the pedigree that you built up. Did you get any job offers from anywhere in particular?
1: Well, I did. You make a tape of yourself, and then you send the tapes out to the various radio stations for review. And, of course, here I was thinking that I would get an offer in downtown Toronto or Montreal or some wonderful urban place. Nothing against the rural communities, but I got offers to go to Dryden, Ontario, and uh, Kenora. As an urban kid, you just can't imagine yourself going to a radio station in the middle of nowhere. It just wasn't what I had envisioned. <laughs> so I didn't go that route. I decided to take a job in downtown Toronto.
0: I can imagine as you're making that decision as a young guy and thinking about well, Toronto, Dryden, not a pretty easy decision to make from a social perspective. Was it a tough decision from a
1: passion perspective? Well, you know, it's interesting. The social perspective was number one. Number two was financial. I could make twice as much money working in downtown Toronto if we were working for an insurance company than I could being a, a DJ up in Dryden, Ontario. And it also became clear to me that it takes many, many, many years before you get to move from Dryden, Ontario and end up in a big city like Toronto or Ottawa or in those places. People pay their dues over a long period of time to get there. I think I convinced myself not to take that job and to stay in Toronto.
0: So what insurance company did you end up working with?
1: I worked for a company on Young and St. Clair called Imperial Life. What was your role at that company? Were you in sales? Were you... I guess it was my degree in economics that brought me to the department. It was a combination of actuary, a person that would look over all the applications for insurance. And we had standard practices that we would go through. To be honest, it was a pretty boring job. But the social aspects of working at an insurance company where you had so many young people I think there were 17 or 20 people that were hired all in the same two weeks. So a whole bunch of us were brand new to the company. Of course, we gathered together and started to socialize a lot. We joined the insurance league baseball teams. We went for drinks after work in Toronto. Became quite a little clique of individuals.
0: You ended up getting shuffled, I understand, into a, a more technology end of things at the company. What was that entailing?
1: I guess the company had realized they'd hired too many people and put them in the wrong places. So they had a bunch of us write these aptitude tests. Now, I am not very good at mathematics.
0: Sorry, you've got a degree in economics. Yes,
1: yes, <laughs> yes. But not calculus Okay. <laughs> and formulation theory and so on. So I wrote the aptitude test and I was one of, I guess, five people that got transferred down to the computer department. And I just found myself enthralled with what was going on in computers and the technical aspects of it. I could really pour myself into it. So I I took to it, and I left my economics background behind, and that's where I got indoctrinated into technology. What year was this? Oh, good Lord. (laughs) This would have been around 1979, 78,
0: 79. Okay, so long before the iPhone?
1: Oh, long before, yeah.
0: This experience in dealing with mainframes at that time got you down a career path, you pivoted a little bit, and you ended up leaving the insurance industry.
1: Where did you go? I went to work for what I thought was a small company and turned out to be a very large multinational called Texas Instruments. And they had just launched a series of mini computers and they were looking for some technical support people for Canada. So I was the first one they hired in Canada. It was in Richmond Hill. I watched as the organization grew. I was introduced to so many really unique and interesting technologies that, again, it's, you start to get this passion and this excitement for the kinds of technologies that are crossing your desk. And you just think, this is, this is amazing.
0: So this would have been in the early 80s. Yes. You were at Texas Instruments for how many years?
1: I think it was just maybe slightly over three years.
0: And then from there, you went to this little, not quite a startup called Apple Computer.
1: Yeah. That was a a major move. There was a move in between. There was a company in downtown Toronto on Yorkville Avenue that was called the Canadian Educational Microprocessor Corporation, or SEMCorp, and SEMCorp received a contract from the Ontario Ministry of Education to design from scratch a computer system that was customized for students from the ages of kindergarten all the way up to grade 13. And they received first order from the Ontario government of some $30 million. And I went to work for that company. I was, I think, the fifth employee. Again, just a a really exciting experience as the company grew. They were selling computers all over the world. And they were eventually bought by a multinational.
0: And then you went to Apple? Correct. What was your role at Apple?
1: It's interesting. Apple had job titles that pretty much no one had heard of before. So there was a group of us called Evangelists, We had an evangelist for desktop publishing, and we had an evangelist for telecommunications and an evangelist for printing devices and so on. And I was the software evangelist.
0: And going from Texas Instruments to Apple with that sojourn between, what was that like? Seems like two extremes from a business culture standpoint.
1: Yeah, so Texas Instruments was a very conservative organization. They were formed out of the armed forces of the United States, so everything was very regimented. Very creative organization and a lot of fun to work for, but very regimented. Going to Apple was the exact opposite. Apple was, if you see something that needs to get done, you go off and you do it. They were one of the first ones to have casual dress Fridays. So you'd see people in t-shirts and jeans on a Friday. Flexible work hours. They had something called the sabbatical program. Once you worked for five years at Apple, you could then take a one-year sabbatical, go and do whatever you wanted, and you'd get your old job back when you came back. Just a totally different culture at Apple.
0: I'm guessing you preferred the culture at Apple over the previous culture.
1: When I look back and say, you know, why am I the way I am today? I think a lot of it has to do with Apple Computer and the culture that was at Apple.
0: Isn't that a great testament to the culture and the company?
1: It really is. I mean, Steve Jobs knew what he was doing. He knew how to get the most out of people.
0: We'd like to thank the TMX Group and the Hamilton Health Sciences Foundation for their support of NGB Ideas. We'd also like to give a huge thank you to the major sponsors of our podcast that include Admari BioInnovations, Omnia Bio, Bay Area Health Trust, Eurofins CDMO Alphora, Facet, Nova Nordisk, Synapse Life Sciences Consortium, Walter X Xdesign, and Lab Occupier. So you left Apple and your next stop was also in Toronto. What path did you follow there?
1: Apple went through a difficult period of time and they cut their workforce by about 50% in Canada. I made it through the first round, but not the second. And so I hooked up with some of my colleagues at Apple been working with for quite a number of years. We started to do, I guess you'd you'd call them high-tech turnarounds and raising capital for companies. Sometimes we take management positions over a temporary period of time. And that became quite successful, and we started to learn a great deal about venture capital and how to structure investment deals and when to go looking for money and who to go looking for money from. Three of us got together, and we formed a little investment company. We raised $32 million from high net worth people in the Ontario area, mostly Toronto, and we formed a venture capital firm called Nabooru Capital Management. We did that for the next several years.
0: That led into you founding a couple of very successful startups,
1: Yes, we had a lot of fun. We didn't realize it at the time, but a model was developing whereby you build up a company and you sell it to your largest customer. And we did that twice, where the customers felt that the products that we had, the technologies we had were strategic to them. And so they wanted to acquire them and use them internally so that no one else could have access to them.
0: Was it about this time that you started doing presentations at
1: universities? Yeah, you're right. The high-tech entrepreneurial period was a period of craziness. There was so much money available on the street for high-tech companies and entrepreneurs who had formed a company. They'd raised a lot of money. They'd sold it off, and now they were going to do it again and again. And so people in universities thought, well, entrepreneurialism is suddenly becoming the in thing. How do I get a handle on what entrepreneurialism? Am I an entrepreneur or am I not? So I had the opportunity to start making presentations to university students talking about the experience of, of what it's like to be an entrepreneur. Can you actually learn to be an entrepreneur? Are you born with it? A lot of those kinds of topics. It was then that I got approached by University of Guelph and a gentleman who I hold in the highest esteem, Dr. Larry Milligan, who was at that time the vice president of research at the University of Guelph. And they had put money into a small little business accelerator focusing on agriculture, and it wasn't doing very well. So He asked me, first of all, he said, you know, would you join us on the board of directors? And I said, Larry, I said, I don't know anything about agriculture and I'm already up to my neck in things to do, but I'll give it some consideration. So I eventually agreed and I went to the first board meeting and they had just fired their CEO of the accelerator. And so he put me on the hiring committee and gave me a package that they had put together saying, this is what we're looking for. And my gosh, it was like 20 pages thick. I met with Larry over coffee. I said, I hope you're paying the person a million dollars because you're asking for 20 years experience in research and development and 20 years experience in investment and 20 years experience in entrepreneurialism. I said, I don't know if that person exists, but if they do, you better have your checkbook out. So we narrowed it down and the board asked me if I would take a look at this fledgling accelerator and give them my thoughts. So I did so over a two and a half, three month period and I gave them a report that said, you really need to turn this thing on its side. The way it's existing right now, it's, it's never going to amount to anything. And so they went through the recommendations and said, okay, this seems to make a lot of sense. Dave, will you do it? <laughs> I said, guys, I'm really tapped out here. I'll tell you what, I'll see what I can do from a day or two a week. I'll try and move this thing along slowly. Well, you know what it's like. One day becomes two days, becomes four days. And the next thing is you're up to your neck and doing this thing. And I ended up doing it on a full-time basis. And what year was that? That started off in 2004.
0: For our listeners, let's put 2004 into perspective. In the tech side of things, four years earlier at the millennium, there was a a bunch of concern about what was going to happen with all of the clocks rolling over, and and that turned out to be nothing. (laughs) Then in Toronto, in March 2003, there was the SARS situation, which if you don't know about it, Google it, but it was not a pleasant time for Toronto, and it garnered a whole bunch of very unwanted international attention. And Silicon Valley was on a significant role and becoming huge in the minds of the general public, not just people in the sector. So you get this opportunity to join this organization and you came on as the new guy in the corner office. Was it what you expected?
1: So there are only three people in the organization, so it's pretty small to begin with. I guess during my time and looking at what this thing could be, I became aware of some of the technologies and the directions that the agriculture sector was headed. The first thing that dawned on me was, this is a duplication of what I experienced in the 80s in high tech, where you had a very small number of entrepreneurs, not that much venture capital available, dominated by big corporations, but the characteristics or the opportunities that were percolating in there were just waiting for something to set them free. That's what I saw in the agriculture. I said, this is a parallel. I've lived through this once before. So when I took this on, it was those exciting technologies and the opportunities to take those and and get them adopted into the marketplace and dramatically change the way we were doing things in agriculture and food systems in Canada and beyond. Every day was unique. Every day was different. There were people coming in the door with technologies that you just couldn't even think about and you'd think, how can you do this? And why aren't we using this? The passion and the excitement came from just looking at that opportunity and saying, we can be successful here. We can make something out of this.
0: You come from Bay Street, so to speak, and you land on the front door of BioEnterprise. And I'm wondering if there was blowback from some of the members or the, the community thinking like, why should we listen to you? Yeah. You don't have any history in agriculture. You don't have any knowledge. What are you talking about?
1: The one thing I had going for me was the fact that I had been an entrepreneur and been successful at it and had had a lot of interaction with the Silicon Valley. So you know what Canadians are like, if, if it comes from America, it must be great. So that was playing to my advantage. But you're absolutely right. I was very humbled from the standpoint that I knew nothing about agriculture. And Dr. Larry Milligan said to me, don't worry about that. You don't need to know anything about agriculture. He says, you'll learn agriculture. You'll absorb it through osmosis. What we really need is somebody that knows how to turn a a going concern into a business. The other thing I think is important, and I got this from Apple way back then, you need to surround yourself with people who are smarter than you. Yeah. And I was able to do that, getting agriculture experts all around me. They educated me. Every time I came into the office, there was something new I learned. And it's the same today.
0: So you weren't hired, obviously, because you were a good farmer. You were hired because you were a good businessman. And are you at a vision of where that sector was heading and how it could get there.
1: It wasn't my vision, but I could certainly see the growing number of entrepreneurs and the growing amount of research going into this community, the agriculture community. It didn't take a lot to add one-on-one and get two. Or three for that case.
0: (laughs) You joined Bioenterprise Canada, which is the leading national accelerator in our food and agritech sector. And it's based in Guelph. Were you living in Toronto and commuting to Guelph?
1: By then, I'd moved to Burlington. Back then, it was a 30, 35-minute trip through country roads. It was beautiful. Today, it's an hour.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Are you still in Burlington? Yes. Okay. We might be neighbors. There you go. The organization is still in Guelph, and it's focused solely on food and agricultural technologies, which is known in the life sciences sector as agritech. And I'd appreciate you telling us what agritech, by definition, encompasses. What is it?
1: It's probably one of those broadly defined sectors or areas of technology. It starts at the farm level and what the farmers do in the soil, what they do with the crops, what they do with their livestock, and any kinds of technologies that are going to increase productivity, reduce costs, increase efficiencies, and in today's day and age, be more climate change oriented. So clean, green, cost effective, and so on. So it can be new feeding systems. It can be new drugs for the livestock. It can be ear tags that tells you exactly where a pig or a cow comes from, which farm it came from, and when it was harvested, and so on. It's very broad. Then you follow up into the food system or the agriculture system where you have the processing. So it's the processing of the grains, the processing of vegetables, the packaging of vegetables, how they get to the consumer, how you reduce the amount of water that is used in agriculture and used in food processing. And then you go outside into the periphery where you take the byproducts of agriculture. You take the oils from flax and the oils from soybean and you use them to create bio-based plastics that can be used in the automotive industry. You look at taking the ethanol from corn and, and using that for fuel with aircraft. So very quickly, you move from the traditional agricultural farm to supermarket. And you end up working in areas of life sciences and energy, biomaterials, and so on. Agritech becomes just huge in its size.
0: I'm sure many of our listeners just cued into the fact that agriculture plays a significant role in the Canadian life sciences sector. And when I first started going down this path 10 years ago, I had not made that connection. And I'm sure many people who are listening still have not, but they just did because of you. So thank you. Hi, it's Jim here. We appreciate you listening to today's show and hope you like what we're doing. If you do, we have a small favor to ask, and and that favor is that we'd really appreciate you telling your friends about us and and posting about us on social with the hashtag NGBIdeas. We will also greatly appreciate you writing a review about us on whatever platform on which you're listening today. Thank you so much for your support. Let's get back to the show. I'd like to do a bit of a deeper dive here because I'd like to talk about the organization and its mission. Why does bioenterprise exist? You've explained what it is, but why is it here?
1: Way back in the in, in the old days, the agriculture agri food Canada, the Canadian government, could see that the areas in which Canada had been an agricultural leader globally were slowly diminishing. They were being eaten away in other countries who could produce products more cheaply, labor was cheaper. They were starting to make use of innovations and technologies that we weren't using. And if we didn't do something in the agriculture and food system, instead of being a provider, we would be a buyer of all of this. And so Agriculture, AgriFood Canada decided to put a program together to support innovation. They couldn't do it themselves. They needed a third-party organization that could do this. So what they did is they signed up a group of organizations like Bioenterprise, And there's others like AgWest Bio in Saskatchewan and PEI Bio Alliance and Prince Edward Island and so on. And they developed a funding program and the funding program was designed to support innovation anywhere across the agricultural value chain. And so we capitalized on that program. So that was the reason that BioEnterprise and others were formed. What we discovered over the years, Canada is a leader in agricultural research and food research. We're number eight in the world in the amount of per capita basis in the amount of money that we invest in agriculture and food research. That's great. And kudos to the agriculture sector and the Canadian government for having put us in that position. But there's a downside to this. And the downside is when it comes to taking that innovation and bringing it into the marketplace, we rank 23rd in the world. We're just ahead of Slovenia and just behind Italy. So what does that say? It says that we have a real problem somewhere in the innovation value chain or the ecosystem, that we are incapable right now of taking innovations and getting them adopted into Canadian agriculture and Canadian food systems. And we have to answer why that is. So being in the trenches as long as we have been, we had some ideas. We had what we thought were some answers. The first one was, we give out money across the country into incubators and accelerators like peanut butter. We spread it all over the place in small amounts. And that means that we aren't building critical mass in the ecosystem. We're building little pockets of small players all around. Those small players don't know each other. They don't talk to each other. They don't share information. They don't share resources. So we operate not just like 10 provinces, but we operate like 20 different regions. And if you go and look in Brazil or Chile or the UK or France, they operate with a cohesive ecosystem that is constantly in connection with each other. They share information. They share resources to the betterment of the companies that have those innovations. And therefore, they're able to get those innovations to the marketplace more quickly than we can. So we said, we got to change this. So we developed something called Canada's Food and Agritech Engine. It's a network. It has over 350 members now. It's universities, it's community colleges, it's entrepreneurs, it's corporations. It's everybody who has a role to play in the innovation ecosystem. And it's still in its early days. It was only developed in 2020. But we're starting to see the impact of this, starting to be able to compete on a global basis. And our goal is to take that 23rd position in adoption and get it into the top 10.
0: How close are we to getting there?
1: Oh, we're a long way yet. As I said, it's early days. We've been at this for almost three years. What we're seeing is The people who are involved in that ecosystem are nodding their heads saying, yeah, yeah, this is absolutely what we need to do. We need to start building a critical mass of expertise in the ecosystem. Expertise that can be shared in Moncton, New Brunswick, or Victoria, BC, or Yellowknife. Just because they're not located down the street doesn't mean that you can't have access to that expertise. Right. And the second piece has to do with government funding. Most government funding programs, again, are regional or provincial. And so if you're an entrepreneur and you're located outside of Ontario and there are programs designed to support your business, you can't have access to those because you're in Manitoba, you're not in Ontario. So there needs to be a national program that's put in place that says, doesn't matter where you're located, we'll give you access to these resources and to these funds to move your technology and your innovation, get it adopted into the marketplace for the benefit of Canadian agriculture and food systems
0: must be a full-time job and then some trying to break down barriers
1: and walls. It is. It always has been. And it's not just agriculture. You have that, I'm sure, in in just about every sector. But I think we're learning. We're understanding better what it takes to take an early stage innovation and get it into the marketplace. You're going to hit a brick wall very quickly if your resources that you're tapping into are in one little region somewhere in Canada.
0: I would think that a lot of these organizations, you know, one of their unfortunate goals is self-preservation, which prevents the communication and the cooperation that you're outlining. That's a whole other sector. I, I won't go down that rabbit hole.
1: If you are in self-preservation mode located, I'm, I'll go back to Moncton just because I picked that originally, in Moncton, New Brunswick, someone comes to you and says, guess what? you can got to have access to all these resources. And in doing so, you increase your capacity you increase your capabilities, and you increase the impact that you're going to have economically, and it doesn't cost you anything. Does that not make sense to you? And for the most part, they go, absolutely. How do I do this? And all we say is join the network, get involved.
0: So we will have the contact information for the organization at at the end of this conversation.
1: I'll take my sales hat off.
0: Bioenterprise is in Guelph. I'm sure there's an informal relationship with the University of Guelph, which is a fabulous university, but why is it in Guelph?
1: Well, it was originally started from the University of Guelph and it was run by somebody who came from the University of Guelph. And the idea was that there's so much research taking place at that university that they just needed to find a better way of taking that innovation, getting it off the research tables and the development tables and into the marketplace. The problem they, they uncovered, it's kind of pandemic across the country, is universities and university professors and researchers are really interested in doing the research and writing the paper with the research and then moving on to the next project. Most of them do not have a business bone in their body. And so when it comes to saying, okay, now what happens? You've got this innovation, now what happens? Oftentimes it just sits on the table. Where it might go to the tech transfer office, and the tech transfer office will try and license it out to somebody if they can find someone interested. But what really needs to happen is you need to get some business entrepreneurial spirit behind that innovation and say, okay, this is the person that's going to drive it. They may not have all the experience that they need, but they've got the passion and the energy to do so.
0: I'm thinking as you're speaking about all of the people I've spoken to who share your passion and have followed your lead in taking the reins and just getting it done. You are to be applauded on so many levels. Who are the partners of
1: BioEnterprise? Well, funding-wise, it's federal government, provincial government, economic development agencies. They have some multinational corporations that provide us sponsorship dollars. The network is full of members and partners. So we keep the cost of joining at an absolute minimum. It's $1,000. So it doesn't cost very much to join. And the benefits that you get are tenfold more than that. So that's really how the funding takes place. And when we run a funding program, a lot of times the government will say to us, we're willing to fund this up to 50%. So one of our goals or objectives is to go out and find the other 50%. So if you can find an issue that is really important to the dairy industry, Are important to the canola industry, then we have 50% of those dollars covered off by the government and we can go to the canola players or the dairy players and say, this is important to you, kick in 50% and let's go.
0: So if there's a listener from a family office or a company that is looking to invest in this sector, they should be contacting your organization?
1: Yeah, absolutely. We have everything from startups to what they used to call gazelles, companies that are on the a fast pace. They're on a rocket ship up to success. And all these companies need investment capital. So we have a pretty big database of companies that are in need of some form of funding.
0: You've been in your position for 18 years now, and it was three people when you joined. And I'm looking for your thoughts on where the organization has come from and where it's heading.
1: Well, the passion hasn't left. I can tell you that. I can see that. Uh, (laughs) I think the opportunity we have in Canada, we're a big country. And so the network needs to have feet on the street. We need to have people across the country who understand the local ecosystem. And let's use Alberta as an example. You know, you've got probably five or six various types of incubators and accelerators located in Alberta. You've got the universities, you've got the community colleges. Somebody has to promote and facilitate relationships, and facilitate co-funding opportunities and cooperative projects. We are doing some of that now, but the opportunity to do it on a much larger national scale is in front of us. The government wants it. Corporations want it. I mean, if you're a multinational corporation, you don't want to have to talk to 150 organizations in Canada to understand what's going on in innovation. You'd like to go to a one-stop shopping place and say, hey, I'm looking for this. What do you know? And you can say, oh, yeah, that's taking place at Dalhousie University in Nova Scotia. Let me put you in touch with them. Those kinds of things. What I see is an overarching organization that supports the ecosystem, doesn't compete, but supports the ecosystem and is able to get the ecosystem operating in a far more collaborative and cooperative fashion so that we can compete with the other countries I mentioned earlier.
0: Thank you for that. For some of our younger listeners who may, just be in university, just starting out their academic careers and and trying to figure out what professional path they should be pursuing. What advice would you give them as it pertains to the future of agritech?
1: I think we are at the embryonic stages of where agriculture and food are going. Young people today are so much more aware of what is in our food products. They read the labels. They are concerned about how our food gets to our table. You and I, I'm not sure about you, but certainly for me, if you'd thrown a dinner on my plate 20 years ago and said, where did it come from? I, I would have thrown my hands in the ears. I have no idea. The young people are far more knowledgeable. They're far more passionate and they're, they're far more intellectual than we were when we were growing up. The opportunity for them to change the food system and the agriculture system is a beautiful opportunity. It capitalizes on their passion and their energy and the opportunity is global. So, if I was picking a place to throw my hat now, knowing what I know, I wouldn't think twice. I'd be looking for opportunities in the agriculture and food sector. This is
0: NGB Ideas. I'm Jim Wilson. What do you think about alternative meat products? We had the CEO of a company in Toronto, a New School of Foods, on as a guest a few weeks ago, and passionate, incredibly talented, incredibly bright, and incredibly driven. And I'd be interested to get your thoughts on that sector of your industry.
1: There are a number of what I call subsectors, and this is one of them. Alternative proteins is one that not only is the technology amazing, but it is hampered by the requirement for consumer education. And we have that in a few areas where consumers have to become more amenable to alternative proteins. And There will be continued work on tastes and flavors and smell and so on for the alternative proteins. It's going to be driven a lot by the young people. When the burgers first came out, my daughter being one, she used to go over and she used to order the Beyond Meat burgers all the time. I never had one. And she said, Dad, you got to go and try one. So I went and I thought, why would I have the other? This is great. I really enjoy them. So I have those now. But it took time for me to embrace an alternative protein. I think that's the case for a lot of canadians and a lot of people around the world it will happen particularly as the price of regular protein goes up which it will do this will become more of a financial requirement i think as well what's a favorite part of your job working with the young people no question i was mentored i was lucky enough to have what i think are some of the best mentors to move me along in my career and i try to emulate that with some of the young people we hire a lot of people who are just recent graduates they come to us with that passion I talked about and the energy and, and the intellect. They lack the experience, but we give them an environment where they can absorb by osmosis. You know, we give them a, enough rope to hang themselves, but just before they hang themselves, we tell them to come into us. If you have a brick wall, let us help you knock that over. One thing I say to other people about managing is, you know, when you hire those kind of people, get out of the way. <laughs> let them do what they're supposed to be doing. And so that's what we do. We give them a lot of mentorship and a lot of leeway. We get out of the way.
0: That's very good advice. I'm going to tweak that question that I asked a little bit and ask you, what's the biggest challenge of your job?
1: It's twofold, but they are related. One is education. There is still a long road to go to educate people on what happens in agriculture in the field and in the barns. And farmers are the number one custodians on earth, but that message doesn't go out to the consumer. So we need to find a way to get that message out there. And in doing so, you will find bankers and investors taking a much greater interest in what's going on in the agriculture and food sector. We've seen it growing over a period of time. But you mentioned family offices earlier. You know, family offices do a lot of tire kicking in this area. But in the end of the day, people are comfortable investing in what they know. So if you came from the mining industry, there's a good chance you're going to reinvest in the mining industry. Or if you came from the drugs industry, pharma, you're going to reinvest in pharma and some pharma startup. We need to get that kind of knowledge into the general population and the investment community so that they're comfortable investing in the food and agriculture sector. And we're not there yet.
0: And that sector, as you mentioned earlier, has got a myriad of subsectors. Are there some sectors above others that you are excited about right now?
1: That's always a tough question because there's just so many. I think, you know, longer term, it was about a lot of talk about artificial intelligence and machine learning and how you would apply that to the agriculture sector. But imagine, if you will, let me paint a picture for you of potentially a farm of the future where you have sensors on the fence posts. You have sensors in the soil. Those sensors tell you the makeup of the soil, how much potassium is in the soil, how much nitrogen is in the soil, what is the water content, and so on. You get the same thing from the air on the sensors that are on the fence post. You have GPS systems up above who can drill down below the surface to tell you what kind of soil you have, analyze it, and tell you, you shouldn't be growing corn on this soil. You should be growing soybean because soybean is a good match for your soil. And then you have the whole artificial intelligence area where the farmer goes out and takes a picture of some blight or some fungus that he's got on his corn plant and he clicks on it and sends it in, and immediately it comes back and says, you have a problem, here's what it is, and here's the solution, make sure it happens right away. All this automation in farming, it's barely happening right now, but it's going to happen. Farms are gonna become so automated, and A, it's gonna reduce the cost of farming, reduce the cost of our produce, but it's also going to make us way more competitive globally. That's one of the areas, when I look at what's happening on the farm, There are so many technologies that can be adopted and that can change the way we are doing our farming. You look at the amount of water we use, it's it's a big problem in farming and an equally big problem in food processing. How do we process food with less water? There are technologies out there that are doing that now that are being experimented with. There's just a couple of areas. There's a whole other area that you talk about, which is natural-based herbicides, pesticides, and fungicides. So we aren't spraying chemicals on our food. That's another area that's going to grow significantly. Those are just three. I could go on.
0: We had the pleasure of interviewing Bettina Hamlin, President and CEO of Ontario Genomics, a few weeks ago, and it was so painfully obvious how closely aligned their mission is to yours and how much crossover there is. And again, when I first started going down this rabbit hole as someone in commercial real estate, I hadn't the faintest idea what was going on and where the opportunities are and I'm still finding out every day something new which is just so interesting to me. The work that's being done on the genomic side of the food chain is striking. I'd appreciate your thoughts on that.
1: Agreed. The whole area of genomics, Genome Canada and and Genome Prairie and, and so on doing some amazing work in the research and they've started to spend more time and attention on the adoption of what comes out of that research. Which is incredibly important. In the past, a lot of the organizations, and I'm not specifically talking about genome, but a lot of the research organizations, you could just basically go, okay, we're done. You know, put your hands together and say, move on to the next project. This one's finished. It's not finished until it gets into the marketplace and is adopted by the marketplace. There's a huge realization now of that requirement. And it's great to see that the genome not-for-profits across the country are doing that.
0: Hey, it's Jim Wilson here. If you're enjoying today's show and you'd like to learn more about Canada's agritech sector, you might also enjoy listening to our interview with Darby McGrath, who is vice president of research and innovation at the Vineland Research Institute in Vineland, Ontario. You can find our interview with Darby at ngbideas.podbean.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks. Let's get back to today's show. I'm going to shift a bit here and wander off into the left field. One of my favorite questions on this podcast that I get to ask is focused on the unexpected benefits of what initially looked like mistakes. I'm wondering what the best mistake you have made in your career has been and how it turned out.
1: I think from a standpoint of moves that I made, when I was in the startup organization in downtown Toronto in Yorkville, that computer company that was designing the education computers, It took a lot of thought before I left. And even when I did leave that company, I was unsure that I had made the right move. Where I went after that was Apple. Going into Apple, such a foreign culture and a very different environment, it took me some time to think, was this a mistake? Should I really have made this move? And that probably turned out to be the best thing I could ever have done in my life, other than marrying my wife and having my daughter. That would be number three. (laughs) So I would say not saying that it was a mistake, but I certainly question whether it was a mistake at the time.
0: Every time I ask that question, I think, oh, I wonder if this is going to be interesting. And every time I think that, it, it's so cool to listen to. Again, looking back in your professional career, have there been any situations that changed the way you have either worked or lived your life?
1: There are some things that come to mind that, that may not directly answer what you're asking. But for the first part, when I was going to university and graduating, You know, my father had worked for the same company for 38 years, and I thought I would do the same. And the aspect of layoffs and having people fired and not working for the same company for your entire career was something I just never imagined. It wasn't until, you know, I was on my third company that I thought, well, this isn't working out the way I thought it was going to. Uh, When I went to Apple, it was really interesting when Apple ran into some financial difficulties and they had to cut back their Canadian operations by 50%. And as you watch some of your comrades leaving to do other things and you're stuck there, you know, you're thinking, oh, geez, you know, now what am I going to do? But the freedom that you get when that happens to you is actually quite amazing. I look at the people that left Apple. They all did startups. They all ended up being very successful. And that's because of what they learned at Apple Computer and, and through their careers. You asked me a question earlier about what would you tell young people And the one thing I would say is don't try to plan your career because you're going to fail. You're going to go places that you had never thought you'd go. You're going to get experiences that you would not have believed or ever imagined. And your career is going to end up somewhere totally different from what you had thought. Go with it. Follow your heart. Follow what you want to do. Because if you're passionate, you'll be successful. That's what I see from the people that I worked with at Apple. Even today, I mean, I'm still in contact with some of them. We have this group on Facebook, and it's pretty interesting where they end up.
0: And it's interesting, if I heard correctly, when these people were getting packaged out, your reaction as someone at the time who was not packaged out, the inference is, what's wrong with me kind of thing, and what am I going to do now?
1: It even goes beyond that. When you see your friends leaving, A, you're very, very sorry that they are leaving because they are a part of you, and there is this hole. Now you're stuck there. You're the survivor. But do you really want to be the survivor in that environment? It has impacts both for the people who leave and the people who are still there. And they aren't all positive impacts. Some of them are quite negative.
0: Thank you for pointing that out. I never considered that. That's a really astute observation. I'd like to ask you if you had the opportunity to do a do-over and you can go back to university and take that course that, gosh, in hindsight, you wish you'd taken. Is there one that comes to mind?
1: Yeah, there was one that I opted out of for very stupid reasons. It's going to come out of left field for you, but uh, it was astronomy. (laughs) Absolutely.
0: You're right. That's out of left field.
1: Yep. Yep. I have always been keenly interested in the stars from a very young age. And I had the opportunity to take some astronomy courses, and I dropped them. You're going to laugh at this, but I dropped them because they were all at night. (laughs) 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 And that was my fun time.
0: So now you're at the end of the dock, and and the summer evenings and you're looking up at the stars and you're thinking, had I taken that course? I'd know what I'm looking at.
1: You got it. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly.
0: That's brilliant. (laughs) Thank you for sharing that. (laughs) Oh, man. This is what I love about doing this
1: podcast.
0: (laughs) Looking back in your career, was there a point at which you thought to yourself, yeah, I'm on the right path?
1: I think I probably felt that on several occasions. I'd say I felt that when I was at Apple. One of the functions I performed at Apple was when the Macintosh first came out, there wasn't a lot of software available for it. And so part of what we had to do while they called me an evangelist was I had to go out and I had to talk to software companies, pre-existing ones, who would be willing to develop their product for the Apple Macintosh. That led into giving them money to do so and giving them equipment to do so. And then it turned into basically an investment in them to do so. That was my first foray into starting to understand the investment process in the investment community, which has been critically important to what I do from that point going forward. That would be one. The other thing, if you go back even further, working at Texas Instruments, I was introduced to the very first voice technology processor that Texas Instruments had developed. I was introduced to the very first intercorporate communications product, much like the internet, but long before the internet was marketed. These were internal things. At Apple, I remember Steve Jobs coming out, and once a year at the developers conference, he would do a presentation about where technology is headed. And he had this Macintosh on the stage, and previous to us coming into the auditorium, they had pinned a fly on the back wall of the auditorium. He comes out and he pulls a pen out of his pocket, and there's a little cable attached to it. And in this pen is a camera, and he places it in a a tripod so that it's pointing directly at the fly in the back of the room. And he said to us, this camera technology will be in every telephone within 10 years. And we all went, oh, my God, look at this. This is amazing. Ah, I know that's not going to happen. And presto, he took that picture that he took with the camera on that pen, and and then he showed it on the giant screen in behind him. He did things that you sit there in the audience and you're just shaking your head and going, wow, this is incredible. So being involved in these leading edge technology companies, seeing technology before it ever gets out into the marketplace has another huge effect on me because you start to look at everything in a different way. You start to look at something that may to the normal person be mundane. And you say, no, but what if you did this? Couldn't this be used over here? You're designing it for agriculture, but maybe it belongs in the pharmaceutical industry or you're designing it for the mining industry, maybe it belongs in the agriculture industry. You wouldn't have that thought process if you hadn't been introduced to technologies the way I was in those early days.
0: And if we don't continue to try breaking down these walls and silos, we won't get there as quickly as we should.
1: Well said. Absolutely.
0: I'm wondering if you ever had an opportunity to have a one-on-one with Steve Jobs.
1: (laughs) No, we went down to a corporate meeting. We were all waiting for Mr. Jobs to come into the room, and it was there were probably about 40 or 50 of us in the room. And it was quite loud because we're all talking. And then the door opens up. He comes in, and you could hear a pin drop in that room. He speaks to us. It's a great speech. He really knows how to motivate people. And as we're leaving, he's standing outside. And as I come out, he shakes my hand and he says, You're the Canadian, right? And I was so nervous, I could barely get uh-huh. out. <laughs> that was the extent of my interaction with Steve Jobs. <laughs>
0: Ah, uh, that's great. Earlier this year, you were recognized by Life Sciences Ontario with a Lifetime Achievement Award. And I was at that dinner and everyone I spoke with said there was no other person in that room who was more deserving. Wow. I was really, really touched by the speech that you made, as I'm sure everyone in the room was. And it was abundantly clear that you are not profit-driven, you are purpose-driven. I want to thank you for The example that you have set and the work that you have done, and I was delighted that LSO made that acknowledgement on behalf of the community. It was absolutely so well-deserved.
1: Thank you so much for that. It was a truly humbling experience. It's something that will stay with me for the rest of my life when you get recognized like that. And as I said in the speech, you don't think about what you're doing on a day-to-day basis, on what the impact has been or what the impact could be. Sometimes it takes something like that for you to sit back and ruminate about where have I been, where am I now, and you know, have I really had an impact? Is there something there to be proud of? Is, and I am. I'm very proud of it. I'm by no means done yet because it, in, in my mind, there's a goal. And I want to get as close to that goal as we can with this, this bit about collaboration and cooperation in Canada. We've got to raise the capabilities of Canada from a technology adoption standpoint. That evening was incredibly special.
0: Well, and I'm personally thankful that you remain humble and agreed to do this little podcast with us. We always end the podcast with the same question, which is, what's the next great big idea
1: on your horizon? When you get an award like I just had, it means you're getting old. (laughs) So uh, I know that I have to start looking at what I'm going to do afterwards. And my wife and I are talking about doing some traveling, probably got a few more years left to give and then uh, I'll go off into the sunset and start seeing parts of the world that I've always wanted to see.
0: That's something to which I aspire. Thank you so much for this. This has been a treat.
1: I've really enjoyed it. Thank you, Jim. You're a great interviewer. I really enjoyed the process. You made every bit as fun as, as I hoped it would be. So thank you.
0: That's very kind of you. Thanks. That was Dave Smartin, president and CEO of Bioenterprise in Guelph, Ontario. If you'd like to learn more about the great work Dave and his team are doing, you can go to bioenterprise.ca. They're also on social at bioenterpriseca. I'm Jim Wilson, and you've been listening to NGB Ideas from Lab Occupier. Thank you, as always, to Tisha Prasad for researching and editing today's show. If you're not aware, we are on social at NGB Ideas, and you can follow me at Lab Occupier. If you'd like to contact us, you can send an email to my address, which is jwilson at Leonard, that's L-E-N-N, as in Nancy, A-R-D, Thanks so much for listening. This episode was recorded at the Lab Occupier Global Home Office in August 2023.